Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So Very Wrong About Games, a podcast about board games. I'm here with my co-host, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Mike. How are you? Always good. Well, like I just said, we talk about board games on this podcast. We're going to be talking about the game we reviewed last year. We're going to be talking about games we played this week, news and why it doesn't matter, and the topic of this week, which will be the only thing we're going to talk about because it's our summer schedule, so no feature game, is auction games. It is episode 75 so we have to talk about our patreon we have one moving on the bgg auction mark that we i've been working on it (laughs) i've been doing entry on the computer i've up to i'm up to 82 games entered so we're gonna get this auction live in the next month or so it's gonna be very exciting i'm gonna stop when i get to 100 that doesn't mean it's going to be the only auction it's just this one will be the first 100 and then i'll probably do another 100 after that and then we'll i'll finally you know be down to a decent number of uh an undisclosed number talk is cheap walker so that being said the game we play we reviewed last year hyper boring ya well, strictly speaking, actually, it was our big, beautiful bag-building bonanza. We talked about Hyperborea, we talked about Orléans, we talked about Altiplano, the latter two being Reiner Stockhausen games. God, you didn't you didn't even say anything. I, there was an awesome line there. Hyperboring, yeah. Like, come on. I've learned... Hyperboring. I've learned both yeah. for my benefit Jeez. and for the benefit of our listeners not to engage. Oh. 95-plus percent of the things you say are best ignored, so you can just move on... That took me all day, Mark. ...and get to something rational. I've been laughing on the inside. Since this morning. Okay. I anyway. thought you liked Hyperborea. I do. Yeah. <laughs> but that's an awesome anyway. Yeah. So, yes. Like okay. you said, bag building games and and uh, how great they are. And the fact that they haven't really put a, a, a decent one in the last few years. It's true. There was this brief period where a number were developed in addition to the three we talked about. So, Automobiles came out. I was a little disappointed with that. There's Quacks of Quedlingburg, which I strongly disliked, probably because it's not really for me. It's it's far, far too light, and it I, I don't really like the way it does press your luck when there's so many better press your luck uh, ways to do it. And we're just really, really big fans of the core element. I prefer its instantiation in Hyperborea. You prefer its instantiation in Orléans. But I think it's fair to say over the course of the past year, we have both played both of those games. And we're always pleased to see them at the table. And, and the, the, the core element is really, really, really engaging. Altiplano, we uh, have not played since. That's correct. Has been best left to the dustbin of history. Although it did have an expansion released, which we have not tried. So maybe that made it better. Who knows? But again, given our fondness for Orléans Hyper, we didn't really see much use in spending more time with Altiplano. And they've really held up well. Uh, Actually, uh, a bit of kind of sort of almost news about Hyperborea. The expansion Light and Shadow, which is by no means necessary, but adds some nice little things. 
has been out of print. They made like three or four copies by accident and released them only in Italy. And there's been a lot of talk about wanting there to be a reprint and certainly a broader North American distribution or even more in Western and Eastern Europe. And one of the publishers showed up on a thread on Board Game and said, we're looking into it. Finally, after years of being pestered, he's finally said, we're considering another print run and looking into it. So maybe more people are going to get access to Hyperborea Light and Shadows. It'd be so. nice if they did like a reprint that like of the base game that included the expansion as well. I'd Although be surprised they're... if they did that because the base game is still available for like 20 bucks oh, really? brand new gotcha. in a number of it sadly sadly ignored game. All right, so that's the game we reviewed last year, which was Bag Builders, Hyperborea, Orleans and some Altiplano. Now on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you play this week? I played the new edition of Thunderstone Quest, specifically the Barricades mode. So Thunderstone Quest has had two Kickstarters since its initial launch, one of them very recently for more expansions, namely more quests is how they they call it, and the Barricades mode, which is the solo slash co-op mode. I tried it solo, and I came away with the following three broad reflections. So Thunderstone Quest is a pure deck builder. It's kind of a throwback. We reviewed it almost uh, a year ago, and it's sort of an unapologetic old school deck builder in that it is much longer than say the realms games or shards of infinity most pure deck builders now are very 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 quick whereas thunderstone quest is you know it's not a super long game we're talking 90 minutes but for deck builders that's really long now so it's an unapologetic throwback to the early days of deck builders in that sense and for what it's worth i really actually enjoyed it i got to see my deck breathe a little bit you get to upgrade heroes in thunderstone quest and indeed the longer time frame allows you to benefit from that you get to capitalize on more synergies you get to tune your deck a little bit more so i really appreciate that it's been too long since i played a pure deck builder that was of that of that skill i'm not saying that i i this is no slight against things like shards of infinity because how quick and visceral they are is really satisfying but I really enjoyed that part of it. The second thing I'll comment is that Thunderstone Quest is now, unfortunately, definitely in the realm of too much bloat, because the base game was already in a massive box stuffed full of cards. And now with the Barricades expansion, it doesn't all fit in one box, and so now you have two massive boxes stuffed full of cards and or components. That is a serious, serious problem, because as you've commented, when it's more than one box, that's a serious issue. And when you have to start to correlate different components, and uh, it, it, it was shockingly clumsy in that sense. And I was very disappointed by that, but I guess that's sort of an inevitability. If I had the time and inclination, I could possibly curate things so that I could kind of sort of cram it down into one box, but still a lot of it is boards. I'm not sure how I'd do that. So that's, that, that's a problem. And the last part that I'll comment is specifically on the barricades mode, turning Thunderstone Quest into a solo or co-op experience. The co-op elements I thought were really cool. There's this boss that you have to go and kill a certain number of times, so it has a nice end point, you know, standard bad D&D trope of going and killing the boss. And fighting the boss is kind of cool. You need a specific setup and a specific set of heroes to deal with that. And the various bosses have various effects that they're going to have on the village every turn. These lovely custom 12-sided dice that have various effects that you toss. Some of them even good. There are new classes that you can have in Thunderstone Quest where you, the player, are represented. It's not just the heroes you play as cards. All of that was very nice. I enjoyed it a great deal. However, I played it solo. The solo implementation is pretty shoddy in that they tell you... And this is a very curated game, right? This is Thunderstone Quest. It tells you specifically, generally speaking, here are the scenarios, here are the four heroes you have, here are the market cards, here's how you set things up. But when you play solo, they tell you, uh, get rid of two of the market stacks and get rid of two of the hero stacks. Which is unfortunate because, number one, I mean, I just did, I just did it randomly, so whatever. I wasn't paralyzed with indecision about which ones to get rid of. But it 
cuts down the card variety considerably over the course of a given play. And so I felt like I was playing kind of half a game of Thunderstone Quest, which is unfortunate. Because again, the joy of the game is seeing card combinations and watching your heroes grow. And when the variety is, is chopped in half, that's not as engaging. So Thunderstone Quest is evolving in kind of awkward ways, suffice to say, all told. I still enjoy the game, but I think I'm going to go back to a single box existence where I don't have the co-op module which is kind of unfortunate because, again, co-op deck builders are usually fun, but it is what it is, and I can't... It, the game is barely transportable as it is. It's no, it's no HeroScape, but it's already a giant, heavy, heavy box, and I can't deal with two giant, heavy, heavy boxes. That's Sentinels, just absurd. Sentinels of the Multiverse is, is, is enough. Well, Sentinels of the Multiverse at least is still one box. That weighs a ton. That weighs a ton. But, again, there's something about the two-box existence that is just untenable. And so I think that Thunderstone Quest, in its original iteration, with 50 bajillion heroes, uh, 3 bajillion monster types, and 17 bajillion different types of market cards, was enough. I can live with that degree of variety. I can settle for that number of cards. And so going past that, not for me. So I'm still a fan of the game. I even kind of like some of the Barricades mode elements, but not for solo, and not at the expense of the additional physical overhead and lack of ergonomics that that introduces into the game. So, again, very much like my review of Thunderstone Quest a year ago, a very qualified and, uh, shall we say, tempered endorsement under certain circumstances. And so that was my experience with Thunderstone Quest. All right. Mark and I and two other people got to play a four-player game of PAX Random, second edition. Walker, why don't you say what the game is actually called? Oh, PAX Palmer. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I I misspoke. I think my brain took over for a moment. Yeah. So second edition, the game is beautiful. Stunning. No, no stunning, no doubt about it. I played very much like the first edition, and I have the same opinion as I did with the first opinion. I, the, the rules are tight. They're there. It's just not for me. It's not my type of game. The game state changes too much between your turns, so you, it's very difficult to plan ahead because people can change factions. The main action... That's free can change. The board can be wiped. So many things can change before it's your turn. So it's very difficult to try to plan ahead. And that's why I don't enjoy Pax Palmer, second edition. So to explain the game state that we had, two of the players, namely myself and somebody else, raced to an early lead in the first couple of dominance checks because in Pax Palmer, second edition, there's actually just the gathering of victory points at these regular intervals over the course of the game. And the final victory point check uh, counts for double points. And by virtue of that, I am shocked that you didn't win. You were very, very close to winning. It was taken by uh, someone else, uh, somebody who had scored a small number of points over the course of the game and, and got a big windfall near the end. But the reason why you were so close to winning the game was because you had been setting up for the end game. You remained loyal to one faction throughout the entirety of the game. And you had just built up your influence there to the point that nobody could touch you. And I don't know whether you were doing this consciously or whether this is just me giving a gloss to the actions that you took. You then, in the late game, made a surge whereby you shoved your faction into a position of dominance and then were this close to reaping the benefits of that. And that would have given you the victory. And so it seems strange for you to criticize specifically the notion that too much changes from turn to turn. I don't think... I don't want to misunderstand. Like the game, in order to plan your next turn, I think it changes too much. I see. Not like not the entire game changes. So That's fair. The fact that you know it's impossible to plan, you know, a, a long term strategy, but to plan your very next turn, 
is is very difficult. That is true. The card you want may be gone. The army that you wanted to activate may be dead. Yes, that's absolutely true. But the thing is, and this is the this is the sweet spot for me for the PAX games. I've talked about this in terms of PAX Renaissance. If there is an overarching strategic horizon that I can view and then view all the moving parts, which shift a fair bit, of more in Pax Renaissance than in Pax Palmer, actually. Pax Palmer is, for what it's worth, for my money, the most strategic of the Pax games in that the game state changes less than the other ones. There's not this huge notion of, oh, well, Hungary is no longer a heavily fortified Catholic state. It is now a thinly garrisoned Protestant republic. You know, stuff like that doesn't happen in Pax Palmer. You know, the, the army might move or might be dead or things like that. And the fact that you can nonetheless shoot for a long-term strategy and see things develop in the long term, even as there's this surface-level variability, that's that kind of dynamic that I like. So I'm sorry to hear that you didn't enjoy it too much. The the salient difference, just just to, as, as a recall for our listeners, the big difference between Pax Palmer 1st Edition and 2nd Edition is that in 1st Edition, as all these surface things were changing, sometimes they would change the victory condition as well. And Pax Palmer had an instant win victory condition. You say, look, I have I have the pieces I need to win, I win. And what pieces those were could change from turn to turn to turn to turn. Pax Palmer has some of, uh, in the second edition, has some of that variability in terms of, as you mentioned, the favored suit, which makes certain actions cheaper. But that doesn't change the victory conditions. And those changes were far more rare. And when, when we played the first edition, it would change, you know, couple times every round regularly, whereas in, in the second edition it changed hardly ever in comparison. And it was very, you could see it coming, right? You could see the cards, you knew people had them, so you could sort of plan ahead and see what was going to come up and, and look around. And when you had them in your hand, you could see, well, I don't want to play this because it's not going to be beneficial. So it was, they definitely did a better job of that. But how about at the very end of the game where it's sort of like played out exactly, you know what I mean? It was sort of like set in stone what was going to happen. It's like there was the person that did win, there was no way to stop them. I disagree. On that last turn. I dis- I disagree. There were, there were, well, okay. In, in the last turn, yes, but it was theirs. It was their turn in which they... No, they, no, I mean, like, they, they even after he took his turn and it went around, I don't think there was anything any of us could have done. Yes, on a single turn, yes. But yes. it was, it was nonetheless the case that coming into that last scoring round... I was able to look at the board state and know that I wasn't competing for the victory condition based on a faction, and I wasn't competing for the victory condition based on overall board presence, because you and this other opponent were dominating both of those. But I realized, after a fair bit of calculation, and I'll grant you that that took some thinking, if I forced a tie, which was plausible, I would have been able to win on the military tiebreaker. So despite the fact that I was, I initially looked at the board state and said, I'm completely out of the running, there's nothing I can do. But upon reflection, I noticed that there was a back door, an unlikely possibility. It wasn't going to be easy, but it existed. And again, that level of flexibility is, I think, when the Palmer, the, the, the PAX games are at their best. And I completely failed in executing it. I just wasn't able to, to, to bring it together, largely due to other players' actions, but also partially due to my own incompetence. But... It is worth noting, for context again, since we're comparing it to the other PAX games, and you commented about this on Board Game Geek as well, it is by far the longest of the PAX games. You know, PAX Renaissance, you're going to spend an hour teaching it, but then when you play it, it's going to last you about an hour. PAX Palmer, we spent two and a half hours with rules explanation and playing, which is not long for a game of its weight, but nonetheless is the longest of of its PAX games. And so if you, I can understand why if you're someone like Walker with a, a, a sort of uh, low threshold for that level of variability. If you focus on the level of variability from, from turn to turn, it could feel like a very, very long and arbitrary affair, but 
What I did enjoy about it is the fact that there seemed to be a lot more diplomacy in not only that game, but in this new edition. It seemed to be, you know, letting people, you know, do actions without charging them, uh, threatening them with spies. There seemed to be a lot more table talk than there was in the other games that we played. I think it's because it was just more transparent what the game state was. It was less opaque. The information presentation was a little bit better and the game state was a little bit more clear because again, the victory condition remains stable. Once you have four different victory conditions that are swapping in and out like crazy faster than someone could change even their, their pants, which we do at the table as well, then it gets very, very difficult to parse what's going on, which again is why I found that when teaching PAX Renaissance, the only way I was able to get my own satisfaction out of the game and the only way I was able to teach clearly is like you, you have a laser-like focus on the victory conditions. But, but I, before you you know send any messages and why we change pants, it's a Canadian thing, so just don't worry about it. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I don't think it's going to eclipse PAX Renaissance as my favorite, but I will say just in closing about Pax Palmer 2nd Edition, it is now infinitely less racist because it does not have Phil Eklund's absurd... Rendition of history? Complete, well, yeah, rendition is the word. Uh, uh, in the first edition of Pax Palmer, there was this completely inexplicable pain to British colonialism, which was absurd because it's about British misadventures in Afghanistan. But so, but Phil Eklund decided to say, you know what? The British were really too nice to the Indians and the Indians are just ungrateful and they really should have been thankful to the British for all the great things that it, it was grotesque in both its ignorance and its slant. Uh, so congratulations on Cole Worley from emancipating, no pun intended, your designs from that particular viewpoint. He may be a good publisher. Uh, you may even respect his design credentials, but oh dear Lord, I am always happy when one of his essays goes to die. And that is Pax Palmer, second edition. Got to play Soul Last Days of a Star again. It's getting a lot of attention on BoardGameGeek and Reddit. Uh, some people are uh, attributing that to our attention to the game. I thank you for your notion, but uh, we don't matter. And so this is just a function of the quality of the game and a number of other people who uh, have uh, wider audiences than ours have been, have been singing its praises. So I had a couple of concerns after playing Saul Last Days of a Star the first time. And that is how much of this is just going to be a simple bootstrapping problem whereby it's, it's kind of solvable because there's very, very little variability. And it's a function of building and exploiting an engine so as to get you, well, in this case, it's called momentum, but it's victory points. And I have to say that my second playing a those fears considerably because the, what changes from game to game in addition to the actions of the players obviously is that there are these different instability cards and they have special one-time effects and it had a huge effect on how we decided to play the game one of the weird effects we had was a card that you could play that said you can move one of your buildings as though it were a ship and this led to some hilarious and painful moments where usually me would, I would park a ship next to a building so I could use it. And then the owner of the building would say, mm, no, I think this building's going to be over here now. And then suddenly my ship is sitting there saying, hey, what, what happened? So that was funny. Uh, people laughed at me. They pointed at me and jeered at me. And uh, that was good times. So, for... so typical board game days. Yeah, it, it was, it was common and characteristic of my social interactions with other human beings. Uh, but I had a great time. It was it was very, very dynamic in a way that solvable puzzles aren't. And if that carries through, if different board states, different players at the table and different instability cards carry that through, I think we might have a, a, a real winner here. It was very quick, very engaging. And I went and I read some of the fiction associated with the game. And it was it was it was pretty good. Incredibly depressing, though. 
we had some conversations because the theme of the game is you're harvesting energy well, from a dying star. I want to go into that. Just okay, because, go ahead. Because I'm glad you brought up this game because I was reflecting our gameplay and the fact that this game instantly grabs your attention because of the theme and how it's incorporated in the game. And it's like this star is going supernova. I hope I'm not like ruining what you were about to say. But anyway, the star is going supernova. The scientists of all these different factions know that it's about to explode, but they know that there's unlimited energy there that they need to capture so they can funnel it into this big ship so they can gain the momentum that they need to get away from this exploding star. And and you're not really fighting against these other factions because they let you use their buildings. You're like sort of, you're not working together, but you just sort of are working towards this common cause of we need to get away from this star. So you, you know, sort of, you know, build these buildings as you can and you use them and you try to get away i thought you know it seemed i can't wait to play it again put it that way the thing that we talked about though in the context of the theme was one of the ways you gather energy is by sending your ships hurtling into the core of the sun of the sun they're they're called sun divers literally and we started wondering are these ships crude are there people there because there's also a mothership that's going to be left behind and it's definitely going to be incinerated oh they're all crude all of them everything's crude the buildings are crude the ships are crude the mothership is crude and what's even more grim in the in the theming is that it really leans into the fact that the sun is going nova precisely because the factions before the start of the game were harvesting energy from the sun and then they realize the sun's about to go nova and they sit around saying oh well i guess the only way we can escape is by finishing the job we started and so so it's just, just this terrible, grim realization that, well, we've messed everything up. Let's keep doing what we were doing. And I, yeah, it's visually arresting. It's thematically unique and it's mechanically engaging. These are all the things you can ask for from a game as far as I'm concerned. And if it continues to be as as dynamic and as variable in the good way based on the different different effects, I'm definitely all in. There, uh, a listener actually suggested that we try some of the thematically linked instability card effects. You can either randomize them or have sets that are that are okay. themed together, and they look interesting. And I, I might give one of those a try. So probably more to follow. But that that's been our further experiences with Saul: Last Days of a Star. I played a mainstream game. I'm talking about it only because it's a game I played this week. This card game came out in 1964. It's based off a game called Spite and Malice. It's called Skip Bow. By Hazel Brown. I played, Sorry. I played Skip Bow. Sorry, by Hazel Bowman. So, and it's a, it's a female designer. So, there you go. So, and it's a it's a very interesting card game where you try you have a deck of thirty cards and the top ones always face up and you're trying to you know funnel them into these different piles and guess what it plays like a card game that was designed in 1964. <laughs> It's it's there's not as though there's no decision space there, but it's much like sorry, where you can't even start a pile until you have a certain card. So the very, you know, first ten minutes of the game is just this cycling through the deck until someone finally gets one of the starting cards and then you can start doing things. It's it's like I actually had to go back to the rule book twice. It's like this <laughs> this can't be actually happening. It's like you know, which is easily fixed. It's like, you know, you start with four cards down and then just start going, like just pick four cards randomly, put them face up and start you know counting up to 12 from there instead of this you know crazy because sorry does the same thing you can't move a guy out of your home base until you you know get a sorry card or a or a start card or something like that and it's the same sort of thing you're cycling through the deck until you finally get a guy out and then you start zipping him around the board very dated but we had a ton of fun and uh that's a skip bow and it's at least better than uno that's something you can say about it's so true it's it's better than uno 
On a related topic, I played Llama again, specifically in my own instantiation, Wrath of the Appliances, Rise of the Killer Cameras. This is the Reiner Knizia card game nominated for the STJ this year. And we commented previously that there didn't seem to be much, much of a game, but we only played it with three, and consensus is better with more. This time I played it with six. It is definitely more of a game with six. Not a whole lot of a game with six, but it's definitely more of a game with six. This is a, a, a game about knowing when to bow out, basically. You get a bonus for playing out all your cards, but if you're stuck with cards, that's negative points, and you don't want that. And with six, the dynamics were much more pleasing, and you saw a lot of a lot more people struggling to make that risk-reward decision about when to go out. So it wasn't just about what cards you had in your hand, and it wasn't just what the deck was giving you. So there were, there were some decisions to be made. Not exactly what I would call uh, one of Dr. Knizia's best work, but it was at least something. So it was it was, it was was worth a couple laughs. I don't know if I'll be going back to it, even with my brilliant retheming about a post-apocalyptic world where cameras and other anthropomorphic appliances are destroying humanity, but I'm glad I tried it with more people so that I could see a little bit more of, of that decision. The Doctor is really good at Press Your Luck games, but he's got much better Press Your Luck games to be had, and as far as quick card games go, you can do a lot better. So that was Llama. Got to play a game called Glenmore. This is one of the Alia games from about 10 years ago by Matthias Kramer. It is a tile-laying game taking place in Scotland. No, not that Scottish tile-laying game or that other Scottish tile-laying game. It's this. This Scottish tile. This is the one where you brew whiskey and where you raise sheep. No, not the other. No, no, you're thinking of the wrong one again. This is is, is Glenmore. This is this one. And there's been Glenmore 2 Kickstarter that finished like... Yes. Uh, but this is a game that a friend of mine had wanted to get his own copy of for a while, so I tracked down a copy of, uh, for him, and, and we played it. I really, really liked the tile placement and how you acquired the tiles. There are these building restrictions that are very, very organic, and it's not just a function of make everything fit. It's a question of you need to have the necessary resources, and you need to have the proper placement in order for the, the tiles to be eligible. But the downtime, oh my goodness, the downtime was killer. Made even worse by the fact that in the final scoring, you are penalized for the number of turns you have taken. So this is a game where not everyone takes the same number of turns. You advance along a track, and you get to take your next turn when you're last on the track again. So if you jump ahead very far, someone else might take two or three turns if they want to gobble up things in the interim. So that part was clever, but in conjunction with the scoring system, which says the fewer tiles you take, the better off you do, you are disincentivized from playing the game. And even when you're taking more turns than your your opponent, there can still be tremendous downtime. I would just get up and leave the table for substantial periods. And very much like your criticism about Pax Palmer, you weren't really in a position to sit there and think, okay, well, this is exactly what I'm going to do the next time it comes around to me. Because, you know, the available the availability of tiles might have changed completely. You can make a couple of heuristics, but oh, just... And, and people weren't even playing slowly. It was just a question of, okay... This is where the tile can fit. This activates these things. I need these resources, whatever. They were just doing transactional stuff, which, again, was was kind of cool. I like how the market work. I like how the resources work, all those things. But the downtime was killer for what is basically a game of placing a small number of tiles, 10-ish or so, 10 to 15. It took far too long. Maybe with fewer players it would be better. I don't know. But the downtime was just completely unacceptable. So I'm, I'm not particularly inclined to go back. And that was my experience with Glenmore. Finally got to play a game of Among Thieves. Among Thieves was actually sent to us by a very generous listener who got an extra copy. And so they sent us one in the mail. 
And Among Thieves is a large player count Prisoner's Dilemma game. It's an iterative, iterative Prisoner's Dilemma game. Are you familiar with the Prisoner's Dilemma, Walker? No. So the Prisoner's Dilemma... This is my podcast. I can talk about what I want to. Yeah, exactly. The Prisoner's Dilemma posits the following. Say two people rob a bank, and then they're both arrested, and they're put in separate rooms, and they're not able to talk to each other. And they're both presented with the following. The cops say, okay, look, if you confess and you implicate your partner, you'll walk, and they'll get 10 years. But we're giving the same deal to them, so you'd better act fast. Then the question is, well, what happens if we both confess and try to cooperate? Well, if you both confess and try to cooperate... Uh, you'll both get eight years because at that point we have lots and lots of evidence against you. And then the question is, well, what if we both shut up? What if nobody talks? Well, then we've got you on a lesser weapons charge. We'll give you three years each. Now, game theory points out that that in this matrix, the best possible result is for both parties to shut up. Because at that point, the total amount of of years suffered is six, right? That's the... But the problem is, in a context where you can't communicate with the other person and there's no trust, what tends to happen is you say, well, the best case scenario for me is for me to walk. And I walk by by confessing. And then what you end up is in a situation where both parties confess and you end up with the worst possible result where there's 16 total years of time and they they both end up spending more more years in jail. This is also, if you don't like criminals, if, uh, if if you're tough on crime... And you believe that criminals should suffer or whatever. The, the, the other example is, should you bring a gun to a diplomatic negotiation between enemies? Right? It's the same logic. Well, if I don't bring a gun and the other one does, I'm really in trouble. And so then what that encourages is, again, it, it, it's a function of breakdown of trust. Anyhow, there have been a number of attempts at iterative prisoner's dilemma games where you can try to screw over your partner and, and, and uh, in, uh, partners in the games. Uh, one of my favorite, actually, was this very strange little game called Bedlam by my friend Chris Cheslick. But Among Thieves is set in the quote-unquote dystopian universe of the Resistance by Indie Boards and Cards, and you're systematically blackmailing members of a corporation, and every turn, four people go, and you can either choose to be quote-unquote honorable, honor among thieves, or dishonorable. If anyone's dishonorable, then all the honorable players get nothing, and the dishonorable players get a windfall. But there's this additional system on top of it of honor, which might mean that you automatically lose at the end of the game if you've been too dishonorable. All of that was great. We loved it. There was just enough texture to be able to say, look, I was dishonorable to that person because I think they were a jerk, and or because of various other things of the game state. You should bring me along for your latest heist. And that part was wonderful. Lots of moments of surprise and and dynamism and temporary allegiances undercut by greed and the sense of betrayal. It was all great. That part was wonderful. The only serious problem with Among Thieves was the event deck. There's this event deck. Yeah, I know. Walker's rolling his eyes. There's an event deck and roughly one-ish event cards came out every heist. Sometimes there would be two, sometimes uh, once there was even three, sometimes there's none, but usually there's at least one. And the events range from everybody has a choice to turn in some kinds of resources or something else, fine, whatever, to everyone on the heist gets a massive windfall, to everyone not on the heist gets a massive windfall, to everyone on the heist gets completely boned. The first heist of the game cost everyone on the heist all of their money just because an event card said so. It was... I'm amazed that the game recovered after that. It was just a terrible way to start the game. Everyone hated the game at that instance. It was only a minor miracle that we were able to give it a chance and push through. Because, again, the core elements are all there and really fun, but the events are terrible. My short-term plan is to prune the event deck and try to make try to see that the terrible ones just go out and see if that helps. It's not that I think that I'm a better designer than these people. It's just 
I know that some of those events were not fun and sapped the goodwill of the table. But in terms of iterative prisoner's dilemma, if this is the kind of thing you've been looking for, it's not social deduction because you know that everyone's in it for themselves. And it's not even the kind of collusion opportunities offered by a game like Good Critters or by Junto or things like that. This is purely about, do I think I can betray people for this particular transaction? It's not about voting. It's about screwing people over and stabbing them in the back. So it was very, very, very fun. Tight package. I, I really liked the graphic design also for what it's worth. But again, those event cards were just killer. So I'm going to try Among Thieves again with a sort of curated event deck and see if that helps things. And that that was my experience with Among Thieves. And thanks again to the very, very generous listener. And those are the games that we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So there's going to be a new edition of the Quest for El Dorado. This is kind of a good news, bad news thing. So Reiner Kinsey himself tweeted that his deck building race game, the Quest for El Dorado, which I kind of enjoy. I thought the expansion was kind of weak, but uh, the doctor has announced there's going to be a new edition supported by, he says, and I quote, many, end quote, more expansions. Problem is, the new edition is going to be with cards completely incompatible with the old edition. So now there's the inevitable question. Will the new expansions be released also in a format compatible with the old version? Who knows? Probably not. Yay! So now <laughs> now you get all these people showing up and saying the obvious thing. The, there's the glad I waited crowd, and then there's the holy crap I just bought the base game crowd. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> that's the story about Quest for El Dorado. My one bit of news is Pacific Rim. It's a great movie. It had a Kickstarter a while ago. It was a movie by River Horse, and now it's available for for pre-order. If you want, if you want to try yet another giant giant monster monsters attacking giant robots, or two giant robots attacking each other in a little city destroying buildings type game, maybe this could be the one. Is it is is it a co-op? Is it multiplayer competitive? Uh... Oh, it's all of those things and more. Oh, oh darn! One of those. We're still, we're still waiting for that multiplayer free-for-all that really does it well. Brief update on tariff news. We talked briefly about the possibility of tariffs being slapped on board games being produced in China. So there was there were a number of excellent articles written about it by from industry insiders like Mike Selinker and uh, the people at Renegade talking about how this would impact their production schedules. Uh, but now uh, the tariffs have been delayed. So according to uh, the Wall Street Journal, has been talking about how the specifically the the, the uh, category four goods. There's no timetable on when they're going to be impacted, so we can breathe a sigh of relief. We've at least gotten a reprieve. And according to to Gizmodo, they might not ever happen at all. So we'll see what happens. So good news there. There's been some updates on on the topic of Reiner Kinnitsia. This is a very Kinnitsia heavy episode, which is good. We, we haven't talked about... Exactly. I, I'd never heard of him before. So this is very interesting to me. Yeah. His, he's going to be publishing a tiling game and Kinnitsia... No way. Yeah, I know. Called Babylonia. Oof. And the rules were recently released. And I have to say, it looks very, very interesting. So the last major tiling game he published was Blue Lagoon, which we both absolutely adore. Babylonia looks to have some minor similarities to his earlier game, Samurai, which itself was brilliant, notion of surrounding things so as to claim claim control of them. But this also has a notion of scoring based on chains. And so if you have a massive chain of things, you can score for every element in that chain, very much like his game Ingenious or a lot of other tile lane games. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Details are, have been slow to come out, but now we have the rules and we can, we can at least see how it plays in theory. But this is one of those things where uh, the proof of the pudding is going to be in the eating, and so I'm very much looking forward to giving it a try and see if it's any good. Finally, a game that's on Kickstarter for another couple days now, and I'm very conflicted about this. It's called Principal Dilemma. Principal with P-L-E. As some of you may remember, I used to be an ethicist. I taught moral philosophy for about 10 years. And this is a game, this is a party game about moral philosophy. You draw a dilemma that offers you one of two choices, 
and you read aloud, and then you explain your reasoning about why you would pick one of those things, and everyone gets to play a card altering the contours of the thought experiment, and then see if they can get you to change your mind. The only example that we have, because again, this is one of those things where it really depends on what's on the cards, the only example that we have is a demo on the Kickstarter page about the uh, trolley problem, and I've already subjected you to the prisoner's dilemma, so I'm not going to subject you to the trolley problem, but the trolley problem by now is, is you know, perhaps the only well-known hypothetical in moral philosophy. And I think it's largely misunderstood, but let's set that aside. And (laughs) quickly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very quickly. And I'm somewhat conflicted because I genuinely think that this is a kind of game that I would kill the fun completely. Because when I would read a card, I, I... professional ethicists, as a general rule, tend to have very strange or absent moral intuitions. Not that they're amoral people, it's that the theory has kind of overtaken their feelings. A lot of people judge uh, ethics based on feelings, you know, based on some sort of hunch or, or, or gut feeling. But if you've been studying it all your life, you instead just have systematic understandings of these things. And so I don't think I'd be very fun <laughs> if I play Principal Dilemma, but by the same token, I can't imagine that it it's, it's necessarily good for a mass audience. Like, who wants to... I love talking about ethics. I was about to say, I love talking about that kind of thing. So I'm I'm saying I'm greatly looking forward to this. I'm very interested in this game now. See, I think the only way I could enjoy it is watching other people play. And I wish I could engage with it. I, I've actually had the same similar problems with linguists playing word games. Some linguists ruin word games for what it's worth. So that's principal dilemma. I can see why it might be hard for you to play it. Seeing as, you know, you have to get down off that pedestal. <sighs> and that is the news. And why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is auction games. All sorts of auction games, Mark. All (laughs) sorts of different ways to use the auction mechanism. Can we start with a particular kind of use of auction? And this is introducing auctions into games that don't have auctions, usually to solve perceived problems, like bidding for turn order, bidding for initial setup, things like that. And there's a lot of them. I have a few that, you know, have that just thrown in. Sure, baked into the design or introduced ex post facto? Baked into the design. Yeah, when it's baked into the design, it can often be good, but there's there's a certain tendency amongst some people, and I completely respect this, whenever someone says, look, this faction's unbalanced, the starting position's unbalanced, what have you, there, there are some people like, yeah, just, just bid for turn order, bid for starting turn order, that's fine. I don't like doing that, partially because it feels like I'm, I'm grafting on a system to a game that doesn't want it. And also partially because it seems like a, a, a tacit admission that the game doesn't work as published. And that just makes me feel uneasy. I realize it's irrational. These are irrational concerns. But it's just, uh, this has been suggested for games like Empire's Age of Discovery. It's been suggested for Root. It's been suggested for any kind of, of game where initial setup can be seriously consequential. It's been suggested as an alternative to the turnover problems in Tigers and Euphrates. Instead or in, in Root, you, what, just bid victory points type thing? Usually victory points. If if there's no money, if there's no shared money in the game, usually you would bid, gotcha. bid victory points. There is points. a game that we did that. Now, I can't remember what it is now, where we just introduced, where you did start with money, and it's just like, well, if you want this faction or you want to go first, then you just spend some of that money, but I can't. For the life of me, I can't bring it up. But yeah, we did exactly that. We just, you know, tacked on this initial bidding and it's it was right out of your initial money. We didn't add any money or anything. So it was like, it was very detrimental to you. Yeah. So there is all kinds of bidding. There is like silent auctions that you do that you, you know, hold your hand out full of money or full of chits and everyone reveals and the highest wins or like we just talked about uh, just, you know, for first turn. Uh, of every turn, there's lots of games that introduce a bidding system where you're going to, you know, bid a bunch of money or bid resources. What other kind of auctions do you have in your... And there's, well, there's just the straight up games that 
are an auction, like modern <laughs> art, or you know, here's something. Start throwing money at it until you know, you know, people don't want to throw any more money at it, and that <laughs> person wins. It's just straight up pure auctions. Right? Well, can, can we talk a little bit about blind bidding? Because I've ragged on blind bidding several times, and somebody wanted some. A couple of people asked what it is that I don't like about blind bidding. Sometimes I think it's okay. Specifically, one of the things that makes me more comfortable with blind bidding is blind bidding systems where only the winner pays. Generally, that's my preference. And that's the that's how it's done in Tribune, for example. Tribune, Primus Interparis, which is my favorite worker placement game, has two instances of blind bidding, but it's relatively minor and only the winner pays, so it's okay. And then there are systems where everybody pays, and those I often find are just opportunities for people to make gross and unfun mistakes that leave them feeling crappy because they spent a small number less than this quote-unquote winner of the auction and they get nothing to show for it. The worst example of this for for, uh, for my taste is something like Archipelago. Archipelago has lots of blind bidding for with money and money is very scarce and whoever wins gets everything and everybody else pays whatever their bid was and they get for this absolutely nothing. And what's worse is that the manual suggests that after you blind bid and you fail, you come in second place, you bid five to somebody else's six, you then use more money to bribe the winner so that the winner will give you something from their spoils. I just, ugh. That was one of the things that I really couldn't uh, couldn't stomach about Archipelago. Well, uh, I have a point there too. Blind bidding is good because it's much faster than other bidding. That is true. Everyone put it in, turn up, Reveal, it's over. But like you said, the systems that everyone pays, like Game of Thrones, you're going to be bidding on those three different areas, and whatever you pay is gone. You don't. It's, At least there, it's ranked though. It is ranked. So if you come in second, you come in second. It is true. Yeah, I agree with you though. It's it can st- still be painful, but at least you get something. That is true. And then sometimes there's blind bidding, which is just a, a kind of a fudge. I've commented before that sometimes auctioning is just a kind of uh, a lazy way to solve problems. And I'm not necessarily accusing this game of laziness, but inside I don't really like the blind bidding. It's it's just a kind of a we just need to we just need to have a combat resolution mechanism. I don't like blind bidding as a combat resolution mechanism most of the time. In Rising Sun, it was okay, but inside it's just uh, usually you just calculate how much you need to spend to win, and then you just spend it, and then hope that you didn't overspend by too much. And similarly in Dungeon Twister, I quite like Dungeon Twister, but the combat resolution is just a blind bid, and I'm not a huge fan of that. Same thing in Risk Twenty Thirty. You know, it's usually tacked on to solve, like, the first player issue, right? It's like, you know, now everyone, you know, throw money at the problem and whoever bids the highest is going to be the first player. But it does deplete resources in that particular game, so it sort of works out in a way. And it is fast, absolutely. And for people who love big reveals, then yeah, blind bidding is probably for you. All I got now is uh, some games that I love auctioning in. Oh, Railways of the World. There's another, another way you can do auctioning where money is unlimited well there's two there's, yep. there's two different instances there i have two games here where one is a closed economy like the entire game is a closed economy yep and the other one is railways of the world where it's a completely open economy so in railways of the world you're bidding for first turn but you can keep taking shares to get more money so you can keep bidding so you can get first turn but you know you're going to pay for it in the end and the estates a game that I was looking forward to it. I still, I, I'm still open-minded, even though the, we got the newest edition and the people that we played with didn't seem to enjoy it. I still want to, you know, try it a couple more times to see if I can, you know, relive the nostalgia of remember it being really fun, but it has a completely closed economy. You know, everyone starts with a, uh, a certain amount of money and new money will never enter the system. 
and it's, and it's already distributed to everybody. So then, you know, when the auctions happen, it just moves around and somebody could hoard it and, and use that to their advantage. So there's two different ways uh, it can be done. Yeah, one of the reasons why I didn't immediately grab to, uh, gravitate towards the estates, and I, like you, I'm kind of curious about it because it's so strange, and I like strange auction games, is because it really l- buckles down and leans into one of the problems often in auction games, which is front-loaded decisions. Especially for new players, you don't know what the value of anything is. And the estates really is, guess what? Your first auction is probably the most consequential, and from then it's just downhill, and about halfway through a game you look down and realize, oh, wait a minute. I lost a long time ago, and there's nothing I can do about it. But you're right to highlight that really interesting thing about how some auction games, like the estates, like Dream Factory or Trump Fabric, completely closed economies where the money just cycles around the different people. That was, parenthetically, one of the kind of cool things about Pax Palmer. I was supposed to bring up the same thing. It was thing. almost a closed economy, not quite. Because I was, I was trying that strategy at the beginning. I was trying to drain the system of the money to see sure. if I could see if that would be a strategy to try to, you know... And it seemed to almost work. It was very interesting. And then there are the games where, as you say, there's effectively unlimited money. So Age of Steam and all its derivatives, namely uh, Railways of the World and things like that, typically starts with everyone standing, looking down at the board and figuring, how much debt do I want to go into to be the first player? Which is a calculation that's striking and always fills me with what could best be described as angst, because it's very stressful to go into debt purely so as to bid for turn order so you can grab that city. Yeah, but it's very, very, very striking. And that's one way where bidding for turn order is baked into the design as a fundamental element of the game, unlike other games where, again, it's tacked on ex post facto to be like, okay, well, we weren't able to really balance the starting position, so maybe you should bid victory points for it. Things like that. All right, then I'm going to have two... I have two examples of... Uh, auctions that are completely unique and they're pretty well my two favorite auction games. The first one is Keyflower. You're auctioning for all these different tiles and using the tiles and the, what's unique about it is once you start an auction in a certain area, because it's it's, you're using colored meeples. So if I start an auction over here with red meeples, then only red meeples can be used there and, and for all the other tiles as well. So it's like a color-coded auction. So you guys sort of like divide your meeples up and see, well, you know, I have this many of this color, so I'm going to go hard. You know what I mean? It's a very unique and very interesting way to play uh, a game, Keyflower. And the second one that's also very unique is Cyclades. And I think it's my best way that it... Uh, my favorite auctioning game is that not only are you bidding for a turn order, but you're bidding for the your unique faction for that turn. And it does take a huge part of the game up, unfortunately, but it's still very interesting because like you, if you outbid someone, then you have to, then you, if you, sorry, if you are outbid, you must bid again immediately, but you cannot bid on the same faction or, or God, right? You have to move somewhere else. And then, it comes around to you and you keep, it keeps going back and forth until, you know, all the, all the levels are going up and where everyone says, okay, well, that's, that's enough. <laughs> We're spending enough money this turn. I, I'm good where I am. And I, I really love Cyclades for that particular part of the game. Well, it is an auction game. It's not, you know, it's not a minor part of a game, but it's a, it's a dudes on a map game married to an auction system. So, it's, it, you know, it's fundamental design. The same thing happens in Amun-Re. When you're at bid, you have to go somewhere else. And so you have to be very, very careful about how you bid because, yeah, you can up your bid later, but it can't be for the same thing. And you might be in trouble as a result. My favorite, one of my favorite novel uses of auctions is also Keyflower because, primarily because of the tempo of it, because it's a worker placement game and an auction game. And the auctions and the worker placement are happening at the same time. You're auctioning off the things you're placing workers on and you're putting workers on things that other people have bid on. And it's this fabulous little element of, of, of interleaving. 
One of my favorite novel auctions in the same vein is Chicago Express. Now, the auctioning itself is very, very straightforward. You just keep bidding until everyone else passes and the winner pays. But when auctions start is entirely under the control of the players. Here you are building track in this relatively straightforward railroad game. You're trying to connect routes. But the shares pay out based on the operating capital, uh, the operating revenue, rather, of the railroad. So if a railroad has one share, all of it goes to that one player. And so you might think, oh, that's a nice railroad. Be ashamed if somebody offered up a share for auction, and you can just do that as their auction. Suddenly, their shares are worth half as much, and you have to you have to wonder: Do I need to buy this other share too, or do I let it go somewhere else and let my revenue slip in half? Do I send good money after bad? That tension is fabulous, and never have I seen a game where just starting an auction is such an aggressive, aggressive move as in Chicago Express. It's absolutely fabulous. I also like really weird auctions. So all of these games are, you know, very novel implementations of relatively straightforward auction elements. But there was a game called Before the Wind, published about 10 years ago by Phalanx. And it had a very, very cool auction system. Everybody takes an action card, and these action cards are the fundamental drivers of the game, but they're relatively boring. You're just shipping goods, basically. You can trigger an auction on anything that anybody else has taken. And then everyone gets to bid, but you don't have to raise bids. You can give the same bid. You can give a lower bid because after all the bids are in place, the person holding the card either has to sell it to somebody for a bid or pay someone the value of their bid, right? So somebody could just be looking for money. I could bid eight bucks for some card because I really want it. And then someone else looks at that and says, "Mm, I don't want this card, but I want money. So if I bid six, they're probably going to pay me off rather than sell it for eight to that other person. And I have these fabulous little calculations as a result. And I just really, I, I, you so rarely find an auction system where everything is open and you're going around publicly, but you're allowed to bid lower or the same as what someone else has bid. I thought that was really cool. On to the only auction game that matters, which is Skull. What a fantastic auction <laughs> An game. An auction game. Oh, yeah, for sure. You're bidding higher and higher until, until you know, you just say, no, that's enough. Sure, but that's more like a... To, to my mind, there's a distinction between a bid and a bet. And to my mind, in Skull, you're more like betting. It's more like poker. It's like, I'm willing to put in this much because I think I can win the pot. And in Skull, it's the, it's the, the, same, the same process. Well, you could say you're raising the price until until, you know, everyone passes, maybe. Fair enough. I guess that's another way to look at it, yeah. My favorite stealth auction game, and my favorite auction game all told, is Blue Moon. Again, by Reiner Knizia. It doesn't look like an auction game. It's kind of his take on Magic the Gathering, because it's this, you know, card battle game with, with, with sealed decks, and, you know, you're nominally you're fighting and you have power values and things like that but in point of fact as it's been observed by uh, many people blue moon is an auction game what you're doing is you're using your cards with various strength to bid for the pot and the pot is winning the fight and getting the dragon for that and the thing is what's really cool about it is the value of what you're auctioning off fluctuates as you are playing the auction and that's the key thing about Blue Moon. A lot of people, when they play Blue Moon for the first time, and I completely respect this, say so it's like, well, look, if I can win the fight, I do. I just keep playing until I don't have cards that can win, and then I back off. But again, that's kind of like uh, our first experience as the Llama. That's not the way it's meant to be played. The, the more clever play, the, the more successful play, is to recognize I could win this, but I shouldn't. I could play, but I'm not going to. And that's that, that in, interfaces with how the dragons work. When you're winning fights in Blue Moon, you're winning dragons. You win one fight, you win one dragon for winning a fight unless you have six or more cards that you've already played, in which case you win two. And so it's very, very, very important to figure, well, should I win this fight early? Should I string this person along? Again, kind of sort of like poker. I don't want to raise too high and, and force them out before the pot gets too big, as it were. 
And then there's a lot of strategy about, well, I'm going to lose the fight, but before I lose the fight, I'm going to strip them of that one card so they only win the one dragon with five cards rather than two with six. Anyway, it's one of my favorite games, and it's it it's a two-player auction game, which is a minor miracle. And it works really, really well. And the moment you see it as an auction game, a lot of things make more sense, and a lot of the subtleties uh, tend to appear. And so not a lot of people think of it in those terms, but uh, Blue Moon is definitely my favorite auction game. And this is from the guy who you know has any number of brilliant auction games. I haven't even talked about Raw yet, for crying out loud. But that's just, you know, Raw is a once-around auction, which is just, which is yeah. just another form of auction. So there you go. The problem with once-around auctions, so let's talk about once-around once auctions, auctions, is turn order can be a huge, huge, huge problem. So in Raw, the way that it works is, the, the only w- the reason why it works is because starting the auction and thereby being able to bid last is your turn. So that's the way they deal with it. There are other auction games that I love, but the turn order problems can be a little bit a little bit unforgiving, like Goa. Goa is my favorite of the uh, now kind of defunct style of Euro game where first you do auctions and then you have an action phase. You know, the, the Princes and the Renaissance games like that. And... In Goa, it can be crucial if you're sitting to the left or the right of the, of, of the wrong person based on the fact that it's a once-around auction. Still, still a great game. I still love the auctions, especially because, you know, it's not a closed economy, but you still pay the auctioneer based on, on what they're auctioning off. But turn order can be a problem when you're doing once-around auction games. I, I think it's worth mentioning one of the games that has lots of different kind of auctions that is currently on Kickstarter, and that's Democker. Democker still has lots of different kinds of auctions. And uh, one of the things that people really didn't like about the open auctions in Democker was you could pay lots and lots of money for these very important resources called pull cards, but you didn't know what they were. So you ended up spending fabulous quantities of money and completely buying them blind. And one thing that they've done in the new edition, which I haven't tried it yet, but I think will probably be an improvement, is you have some notion of what is on the pull cards when you're bidding. But I will say, they do take longer, but for, for sheer drama, a good open auction can be very, very good, where everyone's calling out increasing numbers and you see people doubling down on on, on bids that they shouldn't have been making and so forth. And that's why uh, it's, it's worth just giving a minor shout-out to the classic game that is played best with auctions, and that's Monopoly. Monopoly, when you play the rules as written, every property is auctioned off in an open auction. It's much better that way. I'm not going to say it's... It'd take an awful long time as well. You have to be super, super quick about it. But yes. Well, another quick note I want to make... I. I really enjoy games that have a lot more going on than just the auction, where the currency is being used for multiple things, and you really need to sort of like decide on how much you're going to hold back and save for the auction part. Whereas, and or when you can cripple someone some other way, like hurt them with their money thing, so they can't use. You know that that kind of mechanism is fantastic. Yeah, when it comes to pure auction games, I think they have to be really, really good and really, really focused, like Blue Moon, like Raw. Those are the uh, the pure auction games that I really like. I I agree with you. If it's if if an auction element is well integrated to the rest of the game, Cyclades I find interesting but don't embo- enjoy playing. But things like Goa, things like Demoker, things of, of 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 that ilk, I definitely agree that it can really elevate a game, especially if it's not just a tacked on way to distribute the resources, but a core element of the other systems. The Stevenson's Rocket when you. Yeah, those are auctions, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Little mini auctions, right? Every yep. time you want to move, yeah. Yeah. That's a good part, too. It's true. I agree. Stevenson's Rocket is a good example. 
So that's going to do it for this week for So Very Wrong About Games. Thanks very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>